Um, so we're continuing on in our What's in a Name summer series, and I hope it's been a blessing to you uh, as much as it has been for me. Several of you have shared comments about what uh, God has shown you through the study, and I appreciate that. I'm glad that, that you are enjoying that and benefiting from that. And uh, as we jump in today, uh, I want to uh, remind you of a great person of the faith that went before us, uh, George Mueller. And I'm sure many of you know about George Mueller. You probably are familiar with his story. Um, he was a pastor and evangelist and also ran an orphanage in Bristol, England in the 1800s. And he actually cared for over 120,000 orphans. Uh, he was just an incredible. And he was an amazing man of faith, an amazing man of, of prayer. And one day, uh, one of the most famous parts of his, uh, his life and his story is that one day, uh, as he was trying to get the orphans ready for school, and they were lined up ready for breakfast, all ready to go, but there was no food in the pantry, there was no food in the cupboards, they didn't have any money to run out and buy more food, they, they were completely, um, completely empty in every way. And yet the, the children were all lined up and waiting, and he said, children, we've, we've got to make sure you're on time for school, and we can't have you going without breakfast, so let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing on the food. And one of the orphans spoke up and said, but, but Pastor Mueller, there is no food. And he said, well, then let us pray and, and thank God now for what he will provide. So he did. He, he had them all pray, and he said, we thank you, Father, for your benevolence. We thank you, Father, for all that you will provide. We thank you for the blessing of the food that you will give us and which we will receive. And in about two minutes after he said amen, there was a knock on the door. And he opened the door, and there was a baker. And the baker said, Pastor Mueller, I don't know what this means, but last night as I slept, the Lord woke me up and gave me a strong impression that I need to start baking bread for you, that you may not have enough for breakfast for all of your children. And he said, so I, I got up at 2 a.m. and I baked fresh bread and rolls, and I have them here for you. So George Mueller accepted them, and, and uh, the report was that he was not astounded, that he wasn't shocked, there was no jaw-dropping that he fully expected. Well, of course, this is what would happen. So he took the bread. As soon as he closed the door and the baker was gone, there was another knock at the door. He opened it, and it was a milk delivery man. And he said, Pastor Mueller, as I was making my rounds of delivery for the milk for the neighborhood, my cart broke down, and all the milk will spoil if I don't get rid of it right now. Could you perhaps use some milk for all of your children? And it was exactly enough for everyone to have the milk that they needed, along with the bread that was provided. And so the children were amazed, and they learned a valuable lesson that day that nothing is considered small to God, and God is big enough for even the biggest need. That's what they discovered. And so that served to be a picture to them that day and many days after of the God who provides the God who provides. And that's the name that we're going to be talking about today as we continue on in our, in our study and our series. Today we're going to be talking about what in the Hebrew is Yahweh Yira, 
Yahweh Yira, and the English equivalent of that, probably something that you're very familiar with, is Jehovah Jireh. That's really the English translation of the Hebrew, Yahweh Yira. And we're, we're going to be taking a little bit of a shift in, in our study um, as we go forward. We've been talking about the name El and the compound names, right? El Shaddai, uh, El Elyon. And so it's God you know, Most High or, or God of Eternity. Um, that's what we've been looking at, that part of the Hebrew names of God. Now we're going to be spending some time um, with the name Yahweh and some compound names with that. Yahweh is the personal name of God, and it's the one that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush, but that was not the only time God was referred to as that, as we'll see today. Um, the name Yahweh, it is in its basic form, it means um, will be what will be, or I am that which I am, and I will always be. Uh, it refers to God's self-existence, that he doesn't need anyone or anything to exist. It refers to the fact that he is always the same. All that he's been, he will be. It also refers to the fact that he is all-sufficient, that he has everything that everyone could ever need, and that there's, there's no one like him. He's completely unique. And so Yahweh... Um, refers to all of that. And in our English Bibles, most likely you have a translation that has LORD, all in capital, L-O-R-D, all in caps. And that's most of the time, uh, if not every time, what is referring, uh, being referred to there. It's referring to Yahweh. And in the Hebrew, it's Y-H-W-H, and it's four letters. And that's where we get the English for uh, LORD, and I won't go into all the the semantics of that, it'd be a good study for you to do on your own sometime, uh, why we translated what we did from that. But uh, in the English, you've probably heard Jehovah many times. Um, I'm going to be a purist, though, as we go forward. I'm going to stick with Yahweh uh, as it is in Hebrew, okay? But what it means is the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yura, the Lord will provide. And he does every time. Uh, in, in big ways, as we define big, in small ways, as we look at things that might be small that he still comes through with and provides. Uh, if you look back over your life, I guarantee you will be able to say that. Uh, it won't take you very long. You won't have to think very hard to come up with all the different ways that God has shown himself as that to you, that he is the Lord that provides, and he always will be. That's the really good news. He always will be. And as George Mueller and his, his orphans got that picture very clearly, a profound picture, there's another profound picture, a beautiful picture of the fact that the Lord will provide and he always will. And that's found in Genesis chapter 22. That's where we'll be today for the most part, Genesis 22. So I invite you to look at that with me in your copy of God's Word. Genesis 22 one through 14. And this is still, uh, still focusing on Abraham. Uh, you've probably by now noticed a theme that a lot of these Hebrew names that reveal God's character, that reveal, reveal his attributes, that point to who he is, um, centers a lot around Abraham. There's a lot of connection there. And this is another one. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, 
This is after, by the way, that Abraham had planted the tamarisk tree. We just talked about that uh, at Beersheba, where he called on the name of the Lord as the everlasting God. We just talked about that um, as the keeper of eternity or the God of eternity. And so after he did those things, it says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, and that is not literal, by the way. He had another son, Ishmael, and Ishmael was the son of Hagar. But by referring to Isaac as your only son, that was a position. It was a, a place of prominence. It was a ranking. It was saying he's the heir. Okay, That's what is referred to by only son. Uh, it's not literal. It's a, it's a place of or a, a term of honor. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the boy and I. And by the way, the boy at this point was probably about 30 years old. So he wasn't a kid like you have seen probably in paintings and illustrations. He was a grown uh, young adult, if not already well into his adult years. Okay, Very important to understand that as we go forward in the account. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. We will, we, me and him, will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them, father and son, Abraham and Isaac, walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father? And he replied, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And there's what's wrapped up in the name Yahweh Yira. The Lord will provide. Then the two of them walked on together. And when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. I'm going to stop right there briefly because we've got to acknowledge here together the incredible display and act of faith that that right there was. Right? And that's that's what earned, among other things, but this especially is what earned Abraham a place in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And it was a faith that was obviously exercised even before they got to this point because he said to his servants, we will come back. 
He knew that God had told him, go up to the mount that I will tell you and sacrifice your son I mean, against all logic because Abraham knew God to be. He knew Yahweh. He knew Elohim to be a God that detested human sacrifice. Totally separate from the nations that Abraham was part of and, and had left or that he was even around in the, the Canaanite people and the Philistine people. They all had that as part of their worship rites. And he knew what God thought about that. And he knew God's character. And so he knew and believed with absolute certainty that if God was asking this, even if he brought him to the point of carrying it out, even if Abraham indeed had to end up killing his son, he had enough faith and belief that that wouldn't be the end of the story. He knew that God would surely bring Isaac back from death if he allowed him to still, in fact, be killed. So we see faith exercised before, and now we see it, it exercised in a, in a big way where, he, where we see him actually ready to plunge the knife, the sacrificial knife, into his son, willing to actually offer him as the sacrifice that God had asked, despite all that Abraham had known to be true about God up to this point. A lot of faith shown here. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord. And in your translation, you probably, you probably see the uh, L-O-R-D in all caps. Is that right? Everybody, most of you probably have that, right? So there again, that's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And the angel of the Lord, when you see that phrase in Scripture, most of the time, that is referencing a very specific person and a specific being. It's not just any angel, and it's not an angel of the Lord, like Gabriel was or like Michael. No, this is the designated, the angel of the Lord, and this is another very clear title and position, and it points to the person of Jesus. It points to a pre-Bethlehem pre-New Testament appearance of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And whenever he shows up, and he's referred to in this way, when the angel of the Lord shows up, as we'll, we'll see even in this and other accounts of Scripture, he has a, a unique, unparalleled authority about him. He's able to command and say things that other angels aren't. He's also able and, and willing to receive worship where other angels, whenever they're, they're uh, attempted to be worshipped, they say, please don't do that. Stop. You th- Think of, uh, of Daniel when Gabriel appeared to him with visions. Daniel fell down and he started to worship the angel. And the angel would say, he, he says, no, stop. Don't do that. I am a servant of God just like you. Worship God, not me. The angel of the Lord would always receive worship as only God can. So just something on the side there to note who this is referring or or, or speaking to Abraham, which makes it that much more powerful considering how this plays out. And the result of this encounter, the result of this time on the mountain, it it just makes that even more significant that, that this is who is speaking to him. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here I am. Verse 12, 
Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. This is not just an ordinary angel. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. In place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide Yahweh Yirah. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Wow. Wow. What we see here from this account and this this passage, and and just all of it together, um, is that Abraham and Isaac's journey to Moriah was a visual message about the Messiah. Abraham and Isaac's journey up to Moriah was a visual message about the Messiah. Everything about it pointed to the Messiah. Everything about it pointed to God as being the ultimate provider. Not just provider of of daily needs, although He is, but rather a provider of the ultimate need, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Everything about this points to that. It pointed to the future sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. In fact, the sacrifice made by Jesus would be on the same mountain area as this. The mountain range known as Moriah was the mountain that would become Calvary. It's the same area, same spot of land, same mountain range. And most uh, scholars and people that uh, for their living study, the nuances and the intricate details of things like this, most of them are in agreement that it was the very same mountain, that Calvary, where Jesus was put on the cross, was very, very likely the exact spot of Moriah where Isaac was bound. So all of this points to the future sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. It was a pre-New Testament proclamation of the gospel. Everything about this event, everything about this situation was a pre-New Testament proclamation and picture of the gospel. And I just want to share with you some, some of the similarities seen in Abraham and Isaac with God the Father and God the Son. I want you to see the picture of this. So uh, I'm just going to point out some things that just are amazing with what we just read that that are true of this passage. There was a three-day journey to Moriah. That's how long it took Abraham and Isaac to go up to the mountain. We just saw that. We just read that in Genesis 22. There was a three-day journey to Moriah. How many days would Jesus be dead? Three days. Three-day journey to Moriah, the place of sacrifice, Three days Jesus would be dead as the sacrifice. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain. Jesus carried the cross up the mountain to be the sacrifice. Abraham, we just saw, willingly, willingly offered up his son for sacrifice. 
the Father willingly sent His Son to be sacrificed. Isaac willingly and humbly submitted to his father, even though it didn't make sense to him, even though it would have been absolutely shocking and, and, and just astounding to him. Isaac still willingly and humbly submitted to his father. Jesus, God the Son, willingly and humbly went to the cross and submitted to His Father's will, plan, and even submitted to His judgment, right? That's what Philippians 2 is all about. He, even though being God, did not consider equality with God, which was His, as something to be grasped onto, but rather emptied Himself and took on the form of a slave, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we see Jesus, the Son, Willingly, humbly submitting to his father's will and plan and his father's judgment on sin that was not the son's, but that he took on himself and received judgment for in place of us. And the most significant of all the connections for us, the most powerful of all the similarities and pictures is this that on Mount Moriah, A promised son, Isaac, was saved from sacrifice. On Mount Calvary, the promised son was sacrificed to provide us with salvation. And that's the most profound part of all of this. That's what John 3.16 is all about, right? For God so loved the world that didn't love Him, So loved the world that He gave, He provided His one and only Son that whomever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what we see here. And all of this shows us, it points to and then is fulfilled in Jesus and what He did on the cross, the fact that God will always be Yahweh Yirah. He will always be that. There will never be a time where He won't. Think back over your life and your story and and just picture and remember. I I encourage you and challenge you to, to remember and picture all the ways, big and small, that God has shown up and provided for whatever you needed. Sometimes it was at the very last minute, but it still happened, right? Sometimes it was in unconventional ways, ways you didn't want, ways you didn't expect, ways you didn't ask for, ways you didn't see coming, but it still was provided for. And no matter what that provision was or what it looked like, no provision will ever compare and be greater than the provision of eternal life at the cost of his son's life. And if God never did anything else for the rest of your life to provide for you, if there was not another provision given, you would have infinitely enough and infinitely more than you deserved all because of the cross. God will always be Yahweh Yirah. And Paul reminds us of that fact in Philippians 4.19 when he said, And my God will supply 
My God will supply. There's no if, and, or, or question at all about it. My God will supply all your needs, he says, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's so key. Philippians 4.19, it's very worth memorizing. Don't you agree, Cormie? That's one of the verses that you memorized early on and, and you share with a lot of people. Philippians 4.19, it's a, it's a verse that is worth memorizing if you haven't. And these needs, we sometimes limit it to thinking about this in physical ways. Okay, my God will supply all your needs. That means whatever physical need I have, He's going to provide it. He's going to supply it. I have a need for this, and you fill in the blank, in life and in my life, and so I, I know God will provide it. And certainly that applies. It includes the physical, but by no means is it limited to that, and I would even say by no means is that really the heart of what's being expressed here or what's being promised. It's not about the physical. That happens, but that's not at the heart of what is being promised. Our greatest need as human beings, from the human that was born yesterday to our brother Steve Davis, who is at the end of this journey of his pilgrimage here on earth, who's getting ready to be with the Lord Jesus himself, the whole gamut there, that whole scale, the greatest need every human being, every person that ever lives has is the need to be saved from sin. That's the greatest need. Hands down. No need greater than that. No need more pervasive than that. And so that is the primary thing that is provided by God who is Yahweh Yira, who will provide all of our needs. The, the, the top of the list and the most significant in that list is the need to be saved, delivered, rescued, redeemed, reconciled from our sin and rebellion. And no one else can do that for us, and no thing can do that for us. There is no substitute, except for the one who was the substitute. He's it. He's everything. And so what we need to to remember and, and keep coming back to and what we need to proclaim and preach and talk about and profess and witness and share is the fact that the Son of God paid our sin debt. And He paid it with His life. That was the cost. Our salvation and, and our grace and our new life and our eternal life, it is free to us and it will always be free to us. But we can't ever think that that means that there was no cost involved. It's free to us, but it cost Jesus everything. And it cost the Father everything who sent His Son to do that. Death was required to pay our sin debt before God. Death was required to pay our sin debt before God. And He, God, Yahweh Yura, provided the only life that could satisfy that demand. There was only one life that could do it. It was the life of His Son. And He provided it. He gave it willingly. Colossians 2, 13-14, there's another passage that is so worth memorizing. Paul says this, And you, that's 
all of us. We could really insert some West Virginian here and say all y'all. That's really what is meant by this. All of you. And you who were dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, with, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There's nothing left out of all, right? All our trespasses. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And that record of debt, church, was as high as the heavens. That's why someone needed to come from heaven to take care of it, because it was a debt pile insurmountable by any of us. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that legal demand was death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So with its legal demands, the debt that was against us, with all the legal demands, he set aside. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He didn't just set it aside and sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it. He had to because God, who is perfectly merciful, perfectly gracious, perfectly loving, is also perfectly just. And he had to deal with the debt. He had to have it taken care of. He had to have it paid for. He had to have it ratified. He had to have the sentence carried out. He couldn't ignore it. So he set it aside from us, but it didn't just get forgotten. It got dealt with. It got paid. It got eliminated. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. And what that means is, by Jesus' death, he put to death our debt. That's how it happened. Our debt was put to death in and through Jesus' death. And that, if we had nothing else good, and nothing else by way of blessing, and nothing else by way of provision, that would be enough for eternity. Right? You agree with that? And here's the amazing part beyond this. God didn't just stop there. We just all agreed that if there was no other good thing that happened in our life, no other provision, no other blessing, that would be enough. And that's true. But God is so good that He didn't just stop with salvation. He could have, but He didn't. His provision and His blessing, it doesn't just stop with salvation. Yahweh Yira didn't just provide salvation. Rather, God also gives us the desire and the ability to do what He desires and directs. That is almost, almost as amazing as salvation itself. You want to, as a believer, as a Christian, you will want to please God. You will want to live for Him. You will want to respond to the Savior who gave His life to give you life. You will want to respond to Him with a life lived of service to Him. That's what marks every true believer. If someone says, yeah, I have Jesus as my Savior, but they don't ever have a desire or a willingness or this... this um, compulsion really 
to do all they can to live for God, to honor Him, to obey what He has set out as standard and as direction and as command. If you have no desire in yourself to live for God and to please Him, something is wrong, and you didn't fully understand salvation. That does not mean you're perfect. Please, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That does not mean that the believer, the one who comes to Christ and receives salvation, is suddenly perfect and totally uh, done with sin in every way or, or form for the rest of their life, that you know, eternity has already come and perfection has already come. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you are going to have a desire to do what is right before God. You're going to want to live for Him. The problem is this, our skin, our flesh, our humanity, gets in the way of that desire. Paul talked about that all through Romans 7. Here's Paul, the super apostle. He's nearing the end of his life. And he said, man, what a wretched person I am because I keep doing the things I hate. The very evil and sin I I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. And the good and the righteousness and the holiness that I want and that I want to do and know I need to do, I can't seem to do it. And he describes this cycle. Wanting to do good, not doing it. Not wanting to do evil, but still doing it. And he says, I'm a wretch, I'm a mess. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death, this cycle of death? And then he remembers, ah, Praise God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, there, there's the key. God gives us the desire in our hearts, in our spirits, and the ability to do what He desires and directs. That ability is not in and of ourselves. It doesn't come from within, just mustering up enough power, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't have the kind of power it takes to to truly consistently live a life of purity before God. We need help. God knows that, and God provided it. So here's the good news for you today, Christian, believer. The the way of living for God more is not by trying harder in yourself. It's by surrendering more. It's by yielding more to the power of God in you, which is given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as He gave us salvation, wrapped up in that salvation is the power and the ability to desire what we should and to do what we should. And it's all found in the God who is Yahweh Yira. And then also, it's not just salvation that God gives. He gives us that after salvation, that, we, that desire Uh, and the ability to do what He desires and directs, but God also provides for what we need in the here and now. God provides for our eternity. Hallelujah. Praise Him for that. God does absolutely provide for our eternity, but He also provides for our present. God provides for our eternity and our present. That's just how good He is. That's how good God is. Matthew 6, 31-32 tells us this, So don't worry. You know, think of that song, the old song, Don't Worry. Be. Yeah, you know it. Well, it's not found in just ignoring everything like the song suggests. It's not 
found in the right location, you know, a nice sunny tropical beach, which is what I always think of when I hear that song. Actually, I think of that just about every day, nice sunny tropical beach. But it's not about the right song or the right circumstance or the right situation. Here's, here's the ability that we have for not worrying. Here's the cure for anxiety. So don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the Gentiles? And that means pagans, by the way, uh, the lost, the worldly. For the Gentiles eagerly, passionately, aggressively seek all these things. In other words, that's their whole aim in life. The unbeliever, the lost, their, their whole world is wrapped up in the material, the physical. That's what they do, Jesus is saying. So don't be like them. Don't do that. Why? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your heavenly Father knows that you need food to exist and to live. Your heavenly Father knows you need something to drink to survive. Your heavenly Father knows you need, you need clothing. You need shelter. You need housing. You need all that. The next verse says, so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all those things, they're going to be provided for you. They'll be added to you as well. That's the cure for anxiety and for worry. It's knowing that you have a God who has provided literally everything you will ever need, not just for this life, but for the life beyond. And he gives you the strength and the desire, the will and the do to do all that is according to His desires and His will. And beyond that, He gives you what you need for day-to-day, minute-by-minute life. There is nothing He has withheld from you, believer. There is nothing He's withheld. He didn't withhold His only Son. He didn't stay the knife. Rather, He let the knife fall on His Son. And then He just keeps providing and keeps providing and keeps providing and keeps blessing So don't worry. Don't worry. We don't have to be gripped by or ruled by worry and fear and anxiety. We can say no to that. And we can experience peace and rest and joy and satisfaction. Because of all that, because of all of this, We should be able to say, we can say, with the psalmist in Psalm 910, those who know your name, and today, that name that we're talking about and thinking about, hopefully you'll meditate on after you leave, is Yahweh Yirah. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. We can all say that, and we all must say that. We can trust you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, and he never, ever will. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are indeed Yahweh Yirah. And you have shown that in a thousand different ways, but you show that most of all, and the most clearly, the most powerfully, in and through the person of your Son and his work on the cross on our behalf. We don't need to look any farther than the cross. And in looking at the cross and looking what your Son did, seeing that it's an empty cross and that there's an empty tomb, that tells us and shows us that the payment of our debt was accepted by you. 
that what the Lord Jesus did for us was all sufficient for our salvation. And because of that and that alone, we can trust you. And then you go farther and you provide so many other needs, which provides for even more reason to trust you. But Father, our flesh and our our human fears still get in the way. And if we're not careful, it can be very easy for us to still, no matter what you've done and after all you've done, to still find reason to doubt and to worry and to be fearful. Forgive us for that, Father. And I thank you that you, you know our weakness. You, your word says you know our frame. You remember that we are but dust. And so you provide grace and you provide mercy and you provide forgiveness. And in your spirit that we receive through your Son, you provide the power that we don't have on our own to do all that is according to what you desire and command us to do. So help us to be people that remember who you are, that remember what you are and all that you've done, and remember that we can trust you with everything, that you're worthy. And then help us to be people who yield to the power of the Spirit in us because He is what makes all the difference. Thank you for all that you've done and all you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.